0: My name is Elle and I'm a transgender woman talking about uh, fetish and paraphilia and uh, transvesticism. Um, I'm currently in uh, therapy school, so I'm uh, practicing as a part of my clinical rotations in graduate school. At a community health clinic that's nearby. And part of that, um, you know, clinical learning work is to do what's called group supervision. And ostensibly, this is a staff meeting. So I, I work at a community-based behavioral health clinic. There's lots of other therapists who are like me who are some at some point along the way of pre-licensure. Uh, to become therapists. And we get together once a week to talk about cases and to talk about how we would handle um, different situations. And um, recently at my clinic, we had a conversation around, um, uh, we had sort of a a conversation around a case study uh, that involved a client, a fictional client, who um, uh, was cross-dressing. And um, part of our uh, work during um that meeting was to think about how we would conceptualize the case, what we perceive to be as the problem with this person, uh, or their presentation, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, all of this might sound kind of horrible and clinical, and it you know, maybe kind of is, and we will get more into that in a moment. Um, but you know, as we were talking about this person, I found myself really, really, uh, reacting negatively. Um, so just to kind of flesh it out, uh, this case study, <clears throat> it wasn't really a case study. It was more of like a vignette, like a story of a client. And essentially, uh, this client, um, uh, cross-dressed for, uh, sexual gratification. So it was a, a man who identified as a man, uh, who denied, um, being transgender at all in any way, but, but enjoyed, uh, dressing up in uh, clothing that is gendered as women's clothing, and um, and the reason they were coming to therapy is because they had a lot of anxiety that was coming up uh, related to um, their secret being discovered or, or, or being found out about it, and so um, so they came to therapy. And so we, as a group, we were supposed to sort of figure out um, what was. You know what was the animating problem underneath? Um, how would we help someone who was presenting this way? And and so part of our conversation was to look up in the DSM five uh, different you know diagnosis criteria labels. And if you're not familiar, the 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 DSM five has lots of different categories uh, for sort of. Conceptualizing and understanding different types of um, mental health problems. Um, there's neurodevelopmental disorders. So, you know, something like maybe like autism might be included in that. Uh, schizophrenia spectrum disorders, depressive disorders, bipolar disorders, personality disorders, anxiety related stuff, uh, problems with dissociation, problems with. Um, uh, trauma and stress, um, different kinds of sexual problems. Uh, Gender dysphoria is listed as one of the problems in the DSM-5. And down at the bottom, towards the end of the book, at page, you know, like 700 or something, um, there is a set of disorders that are called paraphilic disorders, paraphilic disorders. And so uh, these are kind of a grouping of problems that sort of uh, relate to sexuality and essentially they're like, that person has this intense persistent, I'm reading from the book now, persistent, uh, sexual interest, um, and, uh, that it's not directed toward, um, another person or a certain set of body parts, uh, but instead are sort of directed toward, um, you know, like an object or something that's, you know, abnormal in some way. So some of the examples that they have, um, like voyeuristic disorder. So like, uh, being a peeping Tom or a peeping Tammy, uh, is considered a disorder in this section. Um, exhibitionism is considered a disorder in this, uh, frauderism, which is, touching other people against their consent sexual masochism sexual sadism uh, pedophilic disorder which is uh, like the sexual attraction to children um, uh, so some of these uh, so these are the kinds of things that are in here fetish fetishistic disorders this is being sexually aroused by an object or uh, and then down at the end of the list included in the same collection of, of things is, transvestic disorder and this is specifically uh, diagnosed uh, for men who are uh, sexually aroused by dressing up in what they perceive to be women's clothing now in in the in the version 5 at least as far as I can tell <clears throat> they've removed some of the gendered language um, but in general it's Essentially, I mean, the way that I understand it is that this is essentially exclusively um, uh, diagnosed in men or in male people. And essentially, it's not just enjoying wearing this clothing in order to meet criteria for this disorder. It's also that it that it lasts a long time that there are, uh, associated fantasies and, um, compulsions, and that this set of behaviors and set of compulsions, it causes the person problems. Like it causes them distress. It causes them issues at work or issues at home. It causes them problems in their functioning. And that's the case for all of these, except I suppose, you know, I don't know. I'm not an ex. an, uh, an expert on like pedophilic disorder or on you know, frauderism, but like, you know, those are, those are things where if a person is molesting children, that's both unethical uh, and illegal and not okay on many levels and incredibly traumatizing and disruptive and de- and destructive. Um, and so, but, but then and obviously uh, frauderism is like this idea of, of touching other people in unwanted way um, oftentimes strangers um and uh, again, you know that would be another area where it's you know breaking the law or exigenism even or voyeurism. these are things that we actually have structures in life um preventing them and you know thinking about being a trans person like, you know we're not that far away from having laws against uh so-called personification or um you know like presenting yourself falsely in public like there's lots of our trans ancestors who even 30 40 50 years ago who were getting arrested for dressing and clothing that didn't match the uh, gender typically associated with the person's assigned sex <laughs> um and so I suppose that maybe there's a legal aspect. In the case, I don't know if you're familiar with all this, but as me and my colleagues were discussing uh, this particular case about a person who was distressed about his um, uh, cross-dressing, I felt myself feeling a lot of internal stress. Um, uh, I felt very, very uncomfortable. I felt... Um, uh yeah i felt judged even though there wasn't anything that came up that was explicit in terms of judging me but i felt like um because there was a time in my life where i wondered if i was quote unquote just uh, a crossdresser you know like um for me uh you know at least to my awareness um I didn't get, like, it wasn't like a sexual thing for me to to dress in women's clothes. Um, but it was also confusing because in my mind, especially as I was male presenting as a, and as I was a part of a church and eventually as a church leader, I was, I believed and had been told that this kind of activity was really wrong and really bad. And so um, there definitely was a degree to which... Um, it was illicit and uh, it was a high stress thing to participate in. And um, and so I think in some sense, I did like feel excitement uh, when I was dressing up in that way because it was something that I thought about a lot um, but it wasn't in a sexual sense, um, and I don't think that I ever, you know, I wasn't distressed enough about that <clears throat> as, um, you know, <laughs> to really qualify for that diagnosis. But yet I could see some of myself in that description, if that makes any sense. And I felt really awful, you know, and I felt like this book is like medicalizing behavior and pathologizing behavior, uh, some of which is not like, maybe shouldn't be, you know, is is stigmatizing in a way. Um, you know, obviously, with some of these diagnoses that, that lead someone to do illegal behavior like pedophilia, um, you know, it, it, to me, it makes more sense that we would, uh, you know, categorize that in a a diagnostic manual so that someone can um so that clinicians can help that person and prevent them from causing that harm on real people. Um I don't even know if that's realistic or not, but that's just kind of uh, you know, my thought. But like when it comes to like sexual masochism or sexual sadism, like I mean that's essentially BDSM. Why does it need to be a diagnosis in uh, the DSM five? Like and, you know, if a person, you know, perceives it to be problematic um, and it's causing problems in their life, like, is the problem really located in that person? You know, that, that's that's kind of what I came to with uh, in the conversation with my colleagues was that, you know, this, this man gets, you know, uh, essentially gets off on dressing up in women's clothing. Great. Fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And his distress was about what would happen if other people found out. Again, not his fault, not his problem. And, and, you know, maybe, uh, like, I have no doubt that therapy would be helpful for him because we could help reorient it. But let's be clear on where the problem is located. The problem is located in a culture that uh, judges and condemns and, you know, essentially that kind of desire or that kind of behavior, it's not his fault. It's not his choice. You know, I i wish that we could live in a society where someone like that man doesn't have to feel terrified of people finding out about uh, um, behavior, sexual-related behavior that is consensual and that doesn't harm anyone. Um, and so... <laughs> Um, it's just it's interesting how you know gender dysphoria and gender-related behaviors or gender-related activities you know show up as diagnoses in this uh, statistical manual when really the treatment is can we change the systemic injustices in society that make these sorts of uh, behaviors or experiences problematic. <clears throat> you know, and (laughs) all of this leads me to think about, um, you know, essentially the, the medicalization of gender dysphoria and whether or not, even though everything that I just said is true, and even though I believe everything that I just said, if there's a way in which gender dysphoria actually does need to stay as some kind of marker, as some kind of diagnosis, as some kind of um, indicator, so that trans people are able to access the medical care that they need um, to, to treat essentially their dysphoria. So listen, I had lots of feelings come up in that meeting because I have the diagnosis of gender dysphoria. I don't want to be pathologized. I don't want to be medicalized. I don't want to be treated or thought of as being sick or ill or as though there's something wrong with me. And at the same time, there are medical interventions that I need because of that experience Uh, that I need and want because of that experience um, that I think and am grateful that insurance pays for. And so it's this weird kind of, uh, this weird middle ground where we as trans people try to, um, you know, normalize and explain our experience while at the same time, you know, trying to avoid being uh sort of excluded from the care that we need. And and the truth, it, it seems to me, um, is that it's really, really hard to have it both ways. Um now, you know, if we had a medical system that provided treatment on the basis of wellness, you know, we're gonna give, we're gonna do treatment interventions, um in order to keep people well then you know a diagnosis might be less important in order to be able to provide that care thinking about kind of the big business structure um but in the current care model that we have in the medical system and in the mental health system is that um the the care that's provided is is to uh, it's curative, like it's, it's in place not to prevent things or not to maintain wellness so much as it is to make problems go away. And the whole system is set up to do it like that. Um, and so we're kind of, I, I feel like th- there's a way in which it might be that gender dysphoria as a diagnosis is, is necessary. And it's imperfect um, and it's not entirely true. And I don't think that I'm sick. And I also think that I need um, these treatments uh, for my own mental health. <laughs> um, and, you know, all of this sort of led me to think about the ways in which we conceptualize gender and gender identity and especially transgender identity. And, and so here um, I'm going to throw out another Unpopular, uh, maybe, maybe unpopular position or opinion. Um, and, you know, it's funny talking about this stuff, it's like, you know, a Reddit thread. Maybe you've already quit listening to this week's episode. And I'm going to talk in just a moment about why I talk about this stuff and why I think about it and why I think trans people talk about it. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but, uh, You know, my unpopular opinion is that I think that transgender or gender dysphoria as a concept is itself uh, socially constructed, just like gender is socially constructed, just like gender performance is socially constructed. I don't think there's anything innate or uh, necessarily uh, biological about these things, although certainly, um, you know, the, the genetic cascade of genes related to gender has an impact on how we live and move through the world. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think um, that the, the idea of transgender is, is sort of like a schema, you know, in psychology, a, a schema is it's a thought pattern or a behavior pattern that sort of organizes how a person uh, lives in relationship in the world and in their own relationships, like in their family systems and so on. So it's like these underlying beliefs and thought patterns and behaviors that help them make sense of the world. It's almost like a worldview or, or preconceived ideas. And so we, we utilize this, this language of transgender to help kind of make sense of our experience in order and also to help. People who are not trans understand us and maybe even empathize with us a little bit better, and and I think all of that is great and it's fine and it's appropriate and it's needed, and it's also something that we have created in some ways. It's like it's something that we've we've made up to make sense of the world that we're in, and you know in that sense you know like with with some super conservative people you know i i think that their some of their objections are kind of getting at this that this is just a made up idea and i wouldn't say that it's just a made up idea i would say that that the the rhetoric or the way that we understand uh, gender identity and transgender identities and gender in general it's all made up It's all made up. And, and I think the problem with with some, you know, in, in conservative critique of, you know, transgender theory and transgender people, I, I think that they miss the fact that, that everything is made up in the same way that we, we, we're, we're making sense of the world that we're in. We're making sense of the experience that we're having. Um, you know, we, uh, trans people have been with us all throughout history and all throughout the world and all throughout different cultures. And we have made sense of our experience and had different sets of behaviors and actions. We have had different explanations of how we are, what we are. Um, and there've been different labels for us all through history. Um, And in that sense, and this is kind of what I'm saying, like transgender as a thing is kind of new as a label, and it is kind of made up as a label, but the experience is is old. It's been with us forever. It's been with us all through human history. We've just made sense of it in different ways. And I would argue that other cultures uh, and other times and other people have come up with all sorts of differing schema for how to explain it and how to explain these experiences. And so it's like when we look at a book like the DSM, sure, it's one way of understanding it. And because of the, you know, the the power structures that we're in, the medical systems that we have, it, uh, you know, gender dysphoria as an idea has a lot of impact and a lot of influence on how we live our lives and how we understand each other and ourselves. Um, but I don't necessarily think it's the only way. And I don't think it's the only valid way. And, um, and I, I guess, so uh, for me, where I kind of land and where I kind of sit is that it's almost like it's a necessary evil or it's a, ne- it's a, ne- it's a necessary oversimplification. You know, this, this way of understanding myself, um, it explains a lot. I don't find myself in alignment with in every way. And like, gosh, if you go on any kind of trans related forum on the internet, gosh, you're going to discover that like, no true trans people agree on one motherfucking thing. Like, we all fight and disagree on everything. Like, <laughs> like, it's, it's a wonder that we've pulled ourselves into any semblance of any community at all because our, our experiences are so widely varying and often widely disparate. Um, so uh, it's sort of like for me when I, uh, at, the, at the end of that conversation with my colleagues in, in my therapy program after we were talking about the person who had or had maybe did not have transvestic disorder, um, I kind of sort of brought myself back down kind of calmed down uh, reaffirmed the fact that i don't have a pathology i'm not sick i'm not ill and that these labels are sometimes needed in in order to in order for people to get the help that they need to feel better and 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 so in that sense i'm grateful for gender dysphoria the label, and I'm grateful for these explanations for how I can make sense of my life, and to be comfortable in my own skin, and to live in this world with joy, and confidence, and satisfaction, and um, just as myself, which is means a lot. So, why am I talking about this? I said I would. I would get to this question here at the end. Why am I talking about this? And and I think, for me as a trans person, I'm talking about it because I'm constantly faced with these challenges. You know, even though the schema of gender dysphoria is 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 in the DSM five, not everyone agrees with it. You know, I had a I had a provider at one point tell me that there is no such thing as gender dysphoria. Years ago, before I came out, I I talked to this person and and sort of said, I I thought I might be experiencing that. And they kind of went off about how it's a made up idea and nobody really believes in that and it's nonsense. So even though it's in the book, not everyone even buys into it. And, And for me as a trans woman now, who's out and transitioned and living her life as herself, I'm constantly finding myself um, having to answer questions in my own mind on a daily basis. People say stuff about gender people say stuff about trans people people say stuff about me. people make offhanded comments and and as trans people we're we're constantly like we use these rubrics as like in some ways as a lifeline as like a handhold to stay on the planet and to stay alive and to make sense of our experiences and so when we're living and moving through the world and those schema get challenged, we are forced to wrestle often. I mean, maybe not all of us do it. Maybe some of us are, you know, more angsty than others. Maybe maybe some of us are more, uh, you know, conscientious than others. I don't know. But, uh, you know, I'm constantly feeling like I'm like these these ways of understanding myself are challenged. And so philosophically, I sort of well, I, I wouldn't say that I relitigate them fully, although there were times when I was, you know, I was doing full relitigations, full battle trials in my mind every single time. Um now it's it's less full, but but philosophically I need that in order to to have some confidence in myself. And to move forward in other parts of my life, and you know, uh, professionally as a therapist, I need to do this for my clients. You know, if that if that person uh, who was so stressed and so anxious about their cross dressing were my client, I, I would need some kind of schema. I w- I would want to lead them through um, maybe adopting a different way of thinking and seeing about their. Desires and their behaviors and their compulsions in a way that uh, was less harmful to them. Maybe where they were less scared of people finding out, or where they had more acceptance of themselves, or maybe both. And, you know, for, for some of us who identify as activists in the world, I, I don't really know if I see myself as an activist. I definitely see myself as someone who uh, values the opportunity to educate folks. Um, and definitely as a healer. Uh, but regardless, for, for some of us who are activists, uh, we do this work of sort of teasing out uh, and understanding the experiences of people around gender. We do it so that we can help inform the uninformed public and also to advocate for keeping ourselves and our communities safe. You know, uh, there is a narrative that's going around amongst super. Um, uh, far, far right wing and maybe even, you know, less so on the way far right, but uh, that that trans people and especially trans women are dangerous, that we're predators. Uh, there's been this phrase that's thrown around, we're groomers, which is uh, astonishing and uh, just a mind boggling accusation. Um, but But there are uh, like these kinds of, um, this kind of negativity and threats and accusation that's getting thrown around is, is are being built on alternate schema. These are not being built on the schema of uh, gender dysphoria and the idea that the gender is performance. Instead, it's built on a schema that, that rises from fear, that rises from inadequacy, uh, that rises from uh, you know, lack of exposure to diversity, lots of stuff. But you know, I think there's a lot of trans people and a lot of queer people in general who feel very afraid at this time because um, of how fragile these ways of understanding ourselves uh, can be. And we can see, you know, not too far into our our history, where the cultures and the societies that we lived within understood us in totally different ways. And this is decidedly United States centric. Um, the way that we are related to people that have, uh, you know, gender expansive uh, patterns of, of living, the way that we're related to it throughout the world varies very, very widely. Um, but in the United States right now, it feels like there's a little bit of an ideological um battle going on. Maybe that's what the conservatives mean by, you know, culture war. Um, I I don't know, but it feels as though um, this this way of understanding how trans people exist and how we understand ourselves is suddenly up for debate, and it feels really scary. And so it's because of that honestly, that I think, uh, again, that it feels important uh, to talk about, both for me, but also to try to help other folks understand how we are in the world. Um, That's a a lot of talking, a a lot of venting. (laughs) Um, I don't know if if you want to hear more of this philosophical uh, mumbo jumbo, uh, but I'd be interested to hear your feedback on the episode. Um, this is early in December when I'm recording this. I'm, I'm probably going to record a couple more episodes today that will um, drop later on in December. My family and I, we have some travel ahead of us, so I probably will have some pre-recorded episodes that will come out, and then um, when the new year comes, I'll be more responsive to your um, you know observations and feedback. Um, but thanks as always for listening. Uh, my name is L and I am a transgender woman talking.